anticipating a Thanksgiving message? I'm sorry. <laughs> but you know, in this life, get used to disappointment, right? Um, as you're turning to James, some of you may know my, my oldest son, Colton. And Colton works um, in a middle school helping out uh, kids who have some special needs. And one of the students that he helps um, is pretty high-functioning. And uh, one of the things that, uh, that he does with this student is they do what's called the drink and snack cart at the school. And uh, he and the student get together uh, first thing in the morning, and they, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not too involved, but there's uh, some beverages, coffee, tea, a couple of pastries, and they load it on this little cart, and they wheel it around the school, and they go to the classrooms, and they offer the staff members a little bit of refreshment. And, and this way, the student... Um, has a sense of responsibility and gets some ownership and, and gets to exercise uh, some of the skills that he's learning. And, and my son related to me how um, the student at times can get frustrated because, you know, to a 13-year-old boy, putting, you know, a carafe of coffee and a carafe of hot water and a couple of teacups and a couple of pastries on a cart is a lot of work, Right. <laughs> And so um, as they wheel that card in, and they, they'll go in, and they'll, they'll, he'll, he's been uh, taught to ask the question, would you, would you like a cup of coffee? And if the answer is no, would you, would you like a cup of tea? And if the answer is no, would, would you like some juice? And if the answer is no, would you like a pastry? No. Would you like a bagel? No. And, and so my son related, there's been times where they've come, and they've brought something to a classroom, and... He, the, the student has gone through the list of things, the, 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 the recital of how he's supposed to offer it, and has done a really good job. And if every answer to the question is no, sometimes he'll go, come on! <laughs> and and my, my son has said, yeah, we, we have to, there's, there's a teachable moment there. We're not trying to coerce people into, into having a refreshment. But the student says, come on! Why do I say this? Well, we're in James chapter 4. And we're going to begin in verse 13. And that phrase in, in, in verse 13, go to now, and again repeated in chapter 5, verse 1, go to now. Um, that's the only two times in scriptures it, it, it's used, actually. And the literal translation is, come on. Yeah. Yeah. So um, the book of James, wonderful book, probably the first book in the New Testament that's written. Um, James more than likely, the half-brother of the Lord Jesus. Imagine growing up in that household. Um, 108 verses in the book of James, 54 imperative verbs. Those are commands. Those aren't suggestions. Those are commands. And I don't know if you guys have noticed, but James is a book that kind of kicks your butt. All right? James, by the Spirit of God, speaks very directly to people. And I'm sure you guys have gone through this, but the, the Christians, the earliest Christians, were primarily just Jewish folks. And they had come out of a system of what we would call religion. Very structured, um, very external. There's lots, of, there's lots of things to see, lots of rules to abide by. And, and Christianity is not Judaism 2.0. And, and James writes very bluntly, there has to be something fundamentally different about you as a Christian. Right? And he dives right into that in chapter 1, does he not? And so James, again, speaks very bluntly by the Spirit of God. And so the verses we're going to look at today is in chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. And the hope is to get through verse 6 of chapter 5. And I am expected to end when? 1230? 1215? Okay. All right. Let's commit our time to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that by your spirit you have seen to its preservation, and you've seen to it now that it comes to us in a language that we can read and understand. Lord, we, we ask that in this hour, that by your spirit, uh, you would help us to learn from your word, and that we wouldn't be, uh, even as your servant James said, the kind of folks who look into a mirror and as soon as they walk away have forgotten what they look like but that we would be changed by your word. 
So we ask for that now, again, through your Holy Spirit and in the name of your precious Son, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. Chapter 4 has been a very challenging chapter. Uh, Verses 1 and 2 deal primarily with the sin of lust and striving for self. Uh, Verses 3 through through 5 talk about the sin of unfaithfulness and spiritual adultery. Right, James is writing to Christians, correct? James is writing to Christians. The the epistles, the the, the Holy Spirit didn't waste time writing to unbelievers who aren't going to read the book. Why would they? Right? So these things are addressed to believers, at least professing believers, right? Uh, verses 6 through 10 talks about the sin of pride. You know, you can't draw nigh to God on your own merit. Verses 11 to 12, the sin of judging or elevating self, right? And, and, and through these things, James is, is trying to get uh, believers to, to understand the difference between what you were, and who you ought to be. Uh, Instead of uh, the striving for self, there ought to be a sense of contentment in your life with what the Lord has provided. Instead of spiritual unfaithfulness, there should be a desire for intimacy with the Lord who saved you. There ought to be a, a, a corresponding response of love to the way in which you have been loved. Instead of pride, um, there ought to be humility. The believer's life should be characterized by humility. And, and instead of judging or elevating oneself, there ought to be, in the believer's life, a desire to intercede. Desire to intercede. Um, I forget the name of the Christian author who said it, but he said that uh, discernment was not given so that we could judge, but so that we could intercede. And so now we find ourselves here in the text we're going to study this morning, verse 13. Let's read it together. (laughs) Go to now, or come on! Ye that say, today or tomorrow we will go into such a city, and continue there a year, and buy and sell, and get gain. What is James relating here, right? It's pretty simple. Um, Someone's making plans. When are they going to do this? Well, today or tomorrow, they set a time. Who is, who is involved? We. Where are they going to go? Well, such and such a place or such and such a city. How long are they going to be there? They're going to be there a year. What are they going to do? They're going to buy and sell. Why are they going to do this? To get gain, to make some money, right? Make a profit. My wife and I celebrated, sorry, to, to back this up. Um, our 30th anniversary was a week ago Monday, 12, right? And it's, it's interesting how the Lord pairs people up. My wife is a planner. I mean, she is a planner. She is a planner. She married a guy who just likes to show up, right? Yeah. Amen. It's all going to work out. Don't worry about it, right? <laughs> I am really, really fortunate that the Lord brought into my life such a wonderful woman who knows how to plan things, because I don't think we'd ever have a meal. (laughs) What is wrong with planning? Well, there's nothing wrong with planning. Let's look at verse uh, 14. James says this, Whereas you know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. And the idea there is kind of like the morning fog or the morning mist. What is your life but a quickly passing mist? What was missing in verse 13? Verse 15 says this, For we ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this. Or that. But now you rejoice in your boastings or your arrogance. All such rejoicing is evil. What's, what's wrong with planning? There's nothing wrong with planning. What what's James is drawing attention to when he's putting a, a magnifying glass over is plans have been made apart from seeking the Lord's guidance or asking 
Lord, is this in your will? You know, we do a wonderful thing as believers, right? And I'm, I'm not going to put this on you. This is just me, right? I make my plans such as they are. And then once they're all made, hey, Lord, bless it. Bless it. It's really not how it ought to play out at all. Because the reality is, what is your life? It is a vapor. It is a vapor. Not to put too sharp a point on it, right? But a week ago this past Thursday, there were several thousand people living in a place called Paradise, California. And if they were still in bed at 9 o'clock in the morning and hit the snooze when their alarm went off, they died in their beds. Because the entire town burned to the ground in about 15 minutes. Nobody went to bed the night before thinking that was a remote possibility. How can I say that with such conviction? Because their bags would have been packed. They would have been ready to leave. What is your life? It's but a vapor. When we make our plans, when we think ahead, again, in and of itself, it's not a bad or a wrong thing to do. But where does the Lord fit into that? Do you plan your life and then just try to slip the Lord in where it's convenient? It's certainly not how the Lord Jesus lived his life. Right? uh, John chapter 4, the Lord Jesus said this to his disciples, It is my meat or my food to do the will of my Father. It is the very thing that sustains me. It is everything about me to do my Father's will. How did that play out? The Lord Jesus got into a boat and said to his disciples, let's go to the other side. Sailed into a raging storm that the fishermen that were disciples who were with them were like, this will kill us. They knew. Jesus sailed knowingly into that storm. Why? to go meet two demon-possessed lunatics who lived in a graveyard on the other side. That's why he went. Remember the story? He cast out those demons, and they got back in the boat, and he sailed right back. They made that whole trip for that one interaction. Was that convenient? Was that pleasant? The Apostle Paul, there's, there's multiple references, and I won't, I won't, we won't go back and, and do, a, uh, do a sword drill looking through this. The Apostle Paul, over and over and over again, in, in the, the historical book of Acts and then in the epistles, talks about, I'm, I'm, I'm planning on doing this if the Lord wills. He wrote to the Corinthians, I plan to come back and visit you if the Lord wills. That's how he lived his life. There were, there were plans in that framework. But they only went through to the, to the extent that he discerned the Lord's will. Ah, which brings us to the next question, right? And this is, this is something that's probably, um, if you haven't studied this out already, it's probably worth a sermon or three, is, is how do you determine the Lord's will? Right? I, uh, I've had the benefit of um, the blessing doing some camp ministry in my life and have had lots of interesting conversations with young people. And that's, this is a theme that keeps coming up. How do, how, do I, how do I know what the Lord's will is for my life? Because those late teen years, there's you know, transition. They're, they're thinking about what school or what career. How do I discern the Lord's will? Good question to ask. I uh, had, a, had a conversation a while ago with, with Brian's dad, Greg, and uh, he said, you know, when I was younger, I used to think that, that probably about 80% of God's will is revealed in Scripture, and the rest of it you just sort of have to figure out. He said, I've gotten a little older, and I've come to a different understanding. There's probably 99.8% of the Lord's will is revealed in Scripture, and there's 0.2% that you kind of sort of have to figure out. 
And the problem is not God's making himself hard to figure out. The problem is we're not very good students of his word, right? How do we discern the Lord's will? Well, he really has made his will pretty plain. There's, there's big, broad things. He, he doesn't will that, that any men should perish. He said that. His will is that all men would come to repentance. How serious of a student am I in his word, his revealed word, to actually discern what his will is for my life? Again, it's not God who's making himself hard to figure out. How else can we discern the will of the Lord? We, we see that also from Scripture through prayer. Through prayer. Somehow it's gotten to be almost a trite sort of saying, and it shouldn't be that we're going to pray about something. And sometimes we actually use that as an excuse to delay, right? Or to not make a decision. Oh, we're going to pray about this. We're going to pray about that. Some serious things occurred in Scripture around prayer. I'm not, not citing it as really a great example, but there was a fellow who uh, wanted to discern the Lord's will, and so he laid out a fleece. Remember? Right. And once wasn't enough, he did it again, right. just to be really sure. I remember in particular one conversation I had with a young lady at camp. She was feeling convicted of her sin. She was sitting um, on the bench around the campfire after, after campfire. And she said she knew she was a sinner, but she wasn't sure if she wanted salvation. And I asked her, why? Why would you wonder about whether or not you wanted to do that? She said this, I'm afraid of what God would ask of me. She said, I have a dream to be a dancer. And I'm not sure that would be in the will of God. See, here's the thing that, that is, that is um, ingrained in our flesh, our unregenerate flesh. And that is to view God with suspicion. Right? Somehow, he doesn't really want what's best for me. Somehow, what he wants for me is going to hurt me. That is a lie of our flesh and the lie of the devil. And how can I say that with such boldness on that? Quite simply, his son died for you. you do you come back to that? How could the one who sent his beloved son to take your place, to bear your punishment, to love you in such an amazing way, how could you entertain the possibility that what he wants for you isn't what's best for you? Now, it may be different from what you want, but never, never entertain the thought that somehow you view God with suspicion. Right? He really only wants what's best for you. And then you come to the really humbling part is the truth is I, I, I really don't know what is best for me. I don't have a clue what's best for me. I may think I know, but I'm wrong, right? I'm wrong. But now you rejoice in your boastings or your arrogance, your planning. One of the translations has that in, in, as your scheming. How do you know when you're, you're, you're off track? You know when you're off track. Well, um, Isaiah chapter 14 um, has an interesting description of Satan, right? And if you, if you go to uh, Isaiah 14, and I think it's verses, I wrote it in my notes because I was going to forget it. Yeah, 12 to 14. It talks about uh, the things that led to Lucifer's fall. And, and what he says multiple times, I think it's six times in those verses, is, I will, I will. I will. I will. His thought, his attention on himself. 
everything about himself. Brother shared with me a long time ago when I was a boys camper, the problem with eye trouble. Only thinking about yourself. I, 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 I. Lucifer had eye trouble. What's a good warning side when you keep using the idea of I, me? Turn over to um, Luke's Gospel, chapter 12, because this is going to segue right into the next section. Luke's Gospel, chapter 12. Now, I know our Bibles say that this is a parable, starting in verse 16. I'm not convinced it's a parable in the sense that it is a all just figurative language. I think it is a story with a, with a meaning, but I think it's actually a true story. So Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 16. And he, that is Jesus, spoke a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do? Because I have no room where to bestow my fruits. And he said, This will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then who shall be those things be which you have provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself, and is not rich towards God. The whole idea of this story is, again, here's this guy, got a big blessing in his life. Got a big blessing in his life. Who makes stuff to grow? Yeah. Anybody here ever do any, any gardening? Come on. Fourth grade or second grade, they give you a cup of dirt and a bean seed, right? That counts, right? Okay. Well, all right, we all remember doing that. You take the seed, you put it in the ground, you give it a little sunlight, you give it a little water, and then what do you and I do to make that thing grow? Nothing. Nothing. It happens. It's a miracle. It's amazing. It goes from seed to plant to to, to now stuff you can eat that actually tastes good, and you really have nothing to do with it. And here is this guy in Luke's Gospel. He has been blessed by God. And what is his response? This is so good for me. This is so good for me. I'm going to make my plan to make my life so much better. There's no thought of his responsibility before the Lord for the way in which he's been blessed. Listen, this is not a condemnation of people who have wealth. Not at all. What it is, is James is focusing, again, this, this putting the spotlight on, turning a magnifying glass on this. Do you understand who you are, believers? Do you understand your responsibility before the Lord who has saved you? Do you understand your life is not your own, Paul would write to the Corinthians. All such boasting about your wealth and your plans and what you're going to do and how you're going to do it is evil when it's done apart from the understanding of being in the revealed word of God, revealed will of God. Back to James chapter 4, verse 17 says this, Therefore to him that knoweth to do good and does it not, to him it is sin. Listen, again, James is not mincing words here. You know, the, the, the folks he is writing to in their, in their Jewish heritage, they're familiar with things like don't lie, don't steal, don't cheat, don't covet. I, if I don't do these things, I'm okay. James is saying, no, 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 this is bigger than that. To not do the thing that is right, to, to know it and not do it, it's sin. It's not just the sin of commission, it's a sin of omission. Do you understand that with knowledge comes responsibility? Before the Lord, with, when, you, when you have knowledge, the revealed word of God comes to you. Ah, 
The Spirit of God, you're now responsible to it. I know people in this audience are thinking, I'm going to stop reading my Bible. (laughs) This is the last time I come to a teaching service. And so I ask myself the question, am I faithful to what I know already? Am I faithful to what I know already? This moves right into chapter 5, the continuity of thought here. Remember, the, uh, the numbers in your Bible are not inspired. They were put there by the translators to help us organize it. Moving right into the next thought here, chapter 5, verse 1. Come on! (laughs) Go to now, ye rich men. Now, there's some commentators who believe that James is now taking it aside and is addressing unsaved rich people. I, I, I disagree with that. I think it's the continuing thought. He's still talking to the Christians that he addressed at the beginning of the letter. He's still talking to the believers. Go to now, ye rich men, weep. And howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. Now, if you, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, um, this verse 1 should remind you a little bit of verse 9 earlier in chapter 4, where it says, those who are acting in pride, be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. So same sort of thought here. Ye rich men, weep. And howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. James is saying and addressing them, come on, think. Think about what is going to happen to you based on how you continue to live your life. What do you mean, James? Verse 2, your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. That idea of corrupted... um, Part of the way uh, folks had wealth in this time that this was written would be in um, perishable things like grain and oil. He's saying all those, those things that you've depended on, that the things that, that you believe are establishing your wealth, they've gone bad. They rot. Your garments are moth-eaten. Now, it's a strange thing, right? In, in the, the time when this was written... Um, making material, making clothing, was a big deal. We don't have any problem going to the store and and buying whatever we want to wear. But in the time when this was written, um, most folks only had a couple of changes of clothes. But the person that's being addressed here has so many garments that they are moth-eaten. You guys remember mothballs? Do they still do mothballs? Yeah. At first it smells really good, but then it gets sickening, right? Now, when do moths eat clothes? When you're wearing them? No, 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 no. Moths, or actually it's the worms that grow into moths, they eat the clothes when they're in storage. For a while. Get the idea? The people that James is addressing here, the Holy Spirit's addressing they got enough clothes that they got stuff stored away. Right? And there's no, there's no unnatural fibers at this time. It's pretty much, it's all wool. Or there, might, there might be some cotton, but it's mostly wool. So worms find that particularly tasty, I understand. But it's not the clothes that they're wearing that are going moth-eaten. It's the stuff they have in storage. Not only that, verse 3, your gold and your silver is cankered says the King James. Um, Some of your versions may say rusted or corroded. I remember this when I was a kid. My my mom had a a silver tea set. And one of my jobs on on Saturday morning, uh, before I got to watch cartoons, was um, I had to dust all the dining room chairs, and I had to polish the silver, which I always thought was kind of weird because we never used it. Right? Um, Yeah. Yeah. Um, Silver and gold tarnish. And you know what? They tarnish when they're not being used. Because if they're constantly in use and things are rubbing on them, the tarnish is actually an oxide, right, for those of you who are chemically inclined. It's an oxide that forms, and it's black. But if if that stuff is being rubbed on and used, 
it doesn't have the chance to form. So your gold and your silver is someplace stashed and safe, and it's collecting tarnish and dust. That's the condemnation against that. Your gold and your silver is cankered or corroded, and the rust of them shall be a witness against you, and you and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. Ye have heaped treasure together for the last days. What is James talking about here? Well, the clue here is at the end of verse 3, um, that word last is a superlative. It, it means exactly how it's translated in English, right? It's not, it's, not, it's not late days. It's not in the latter days. It is the last day or the last days. And so there's kind of two ways to, to understand what this verse is referring to. And both of them work, and they're both good thoughts. Um, one is you are heaping up treasure, you're keeping up treasure, and you're not even cognizant of the fact that today's your last day. There's not going to be any time to spend it. You're keeping up treasure for the last day. But the other way that the verse can be understood is that last day or last days is being understood as the judgment seat of Christ. And what you're heaping up is not testimony that's going to um, praise you or exonerate you. It's, it's testimony that is going to condemn you. And, and we're not talking about loss of salvation here. Okay, That, that is not in view here at all. Because we know from other texts that can't happen. The judgment seat of Christ is, is not about whether or not a person is saved. That has already been determined. The judgment seat of Christ is evaluating your life's work and looking for, and this is what the Lord Jesus does, and this is a mind blow if you want to spend some time meditating on it. The Lord Jesus wants to reward you. He wants to give you more than eternal life. But what this verse is saying is that ye rich men who are self-absorbed, who are not thinking about what the will of God is in their life, they're just taking the blessings and, and hoarding it for themselves. What is going to happen is the very things that you hoarded, and found your security in, those things in their spoiled and rusted state are going to be a witness against you at the judgment seat of Christ. And the, the, the sting of their testimony is going to be like fire that eats your flesh. Anyone ever been burned? It really hurts. And not only does it hurt for a moment, but the pain lingers. That is what is unique about a burn. The pain lingers. The very thing that you strove after. That thing that you made a priority. That material stuff. Testify against you. And it'll hurt. It'll hurt. gets worse. Verse 4, there's more testimony. Behold, the hire of the laborers who have reaped down your fields, which is of you kept back by fraud, crieth. And the cries of them that have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. There's two more cries mentioned in here. It's two different words in the Greek. One is the cry of the unrewarded wages. The idea behind this is that somehow this person of wealth that's being uh, referred to here in the, in, in the first few verses has some responsibility in the way that they've achieved that wealth is through cheating people. And James says this by the Spirit of God. Don't think for a second the cries of both those, the money that wasn't paid, those laborers, and also the cries of the laborers themselves, because both are mentioned in those verses, in that verse. Don't think that God is deaf to either one of those. Isn't that kind of cool? God can hear inanimate objects speak. Right? It's amazing. He said right in the beginning of the Bible, right, when he, when he talking to Cain, 
Where's your brother? Cain says, I'm not my brother's keeper. God says, the cry of your brother's blood is crying out from the ground. God can hear things that we can't. And there's an interesting title for the Lord here, the Lord of Sabaoth. And some of your translations, I think the New Living Translations uh, translates it this way, and it's, it's a great way to translate it. The captain of the hosts of heaven. Now, why do you think the Holy Spirit would have James use that title? Because there's a bunch of different names of the Lord to use, right? And here's the usage, the captain of the hosts of heaven. That's the one he uses. Don't think for a second that somehow you got away with something. Be reminded again of who you are dealing with. This is not Jesus meek and mild, which he is. But in this context, he is the captain of the armies of heaven. He is the commanding general. How do you think he's going to take up your case? Verse 5, you have lived in pleasure on the earth and been wanton. You have nourished your hearts as in the day of slaughter. This whole idea of living in excess, living in pleasure, wantonness is just living for the moment, grabbing the gusto, all about you. James is saying, believers, you cannot live this way. You should not live this way. If you do, what you have done is you have nourished your hearts as in the day of slaughter. You are like an animal that is destined to be sacrificed, that is willingly fattening itself up. How many turkeys do you think right now are gobbling? up more food because they want to be a little chubbier because Thanksgiving is coming. That is the illusion of this verse. really appreciate um, the little video for the uh, Operation Christmas Child. And I know there's, uh, there's a bunch of people here who have been involved in mission work. And some of you have traveled overseas and seen how other people in this world live. And we live in a land of incredible wealth. And I don't just mean monetarily, because I can tell you the truth, probably this is no exaggeration. Every single one of you this morning got out of bed and turned the water on in your bathroom. And hopefully brushed your teeth. And do you understand that most of the folks in this world go without clean water? Never mind a bathroom. We live in a land of incredible wealth. These verses remind us again that, go back to verse 17 of chapter 4. Do you understand? You're responsible for the knowledge that you have. You're responsible before the Lord as a steward of what you've been given. And the Lord, the captain of the hosts of heaven, is going to evaluate that. There's an element of social consciousness in these verses, is there not? Now, I don't want to go way off kilter here. But it, it is something that every believer should be considering. Right? Turn over to um, Matthew, Gospel chapter 6. I don't know how, how about you guys, but 
Um, man, talking about wealth or talking about money in church always makes me clench up a little bit. It just, right? I, it makes me uncomfortable. How dare you? I get really defensive about it. And, that, and I get it. That's my flesh. But it's something that James is, direct, is addressing head on, right? By the Spirit of God. Um, I'm not that old. I'm in the I'm in the youth of old age. I'm in my fifties, right? So, um, I'm no longer young, but I'm in the youth of old age. But I've I've lived a little bit of time, and I've met some believers who are wealthy, and um, some of them have been amazing testimonies. Just amazing testimonies, like almost the fact that you'd never know they were wealthy because they lived simply. They're so generous. And then I've known others who have really gone the other way, who, if I didn't know they were Christians, there's really not a whole lot of difference between the way they live their life and the way the world lives and collects toys and strives for the things that this world values. And again, I haven't lived that long, but I've seen... Folks in that last category not end well over and over and over again. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6, the Lord speaking here. Verse 19, Lay not up for yourselves treasure upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through to steal. You You think James maybe heard this sermon? Right? There's a lot of parallels between the book of James and um, particularly the Sermon on the Mount. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. A brother read from First Peter this morning, heaven's the place where our inheritance is kept. It doesn't fade away or corrode there. How different from earth heaven is. Verse 21, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The light of the body is the eye, and if therefore thine eye is single, your whole body shall be full of light. But if your eye be evil, your whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness. We don't have time to get into it, but it's, it's, the Lord is speaking about how you perceive, how you value. Look at verse 24, no man can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot, this is the Lord Jesus speaking, the words are in red, right? Ye cannot serve God, and the King James says mammon, which is just a transliteration of the Greek word that's used there. In other words, we couldn't think of a better word to translate this into English, so we just left it in Greek. Now, some of your, if you have uh, one of the uh, other translations, it may say money or it may say riches. But the idea really is bigger than just money. The idea behind the word mammon is the thing that you put your confidence in. You cannot say, my confidence is in God, and simultaneously say, my confidence is in my 401k. You cannot do that. And look at this verb at the end of this verse. You cannot serve God and mammon. The idea is this, that's just ironclad. You're serving one or the other. Who are you serving? Is your confidence in the Lord, or is your confidence in your ability to get gain? Going back to chapter 9, verse 13. Where's your confidence? How do you live your life? You have verse 6 of chapter 5. You have condemned and killed the just or the innocent, and he doth not resist you. And this whole idea is that if you are slaving away to accumulate the stuff of this world, If you are heaping up treasure, verse 3, as opposed to laying up treasure in heaven, 
If you are heaping up treasure in this life, by and large, that comes at the expense of others. And don't think for a second that God is going to mix the indirect consequences of your greed, of your independent thinking, of your I-ness, me, 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 me. I know, it's late. Is God against saving money? No, he is not. He is not. Scripture is really clear on that. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 14, Paul says this, Parents should lay up for their children, not children for the parents. In 1 Timothy, Paul says this in chapter 5, uh, someone who does not look after his own family, doesn't provide for his own, is worse than an infidel and, is, and denies the faith. So there is, there is nothing wrong with planning and to, to save, to help, particularly with the care of your own family. Scripture is really clear on that. But I wonder how much clearer the gospel would go out. I wonder how much bigger of an impact we as believers would have on this world. I wonder how many more kids would have shoes and clean water to drink. If just the believers in wealthy places like Cheshire, Connecticut, in wealthy places like Stonington, Connecticut, didn't have bank accounts heaped with gold and silver that they sat on till their deathbed. And didn't think for a moment that there's somebody in desperate need. In Luke 15, we have the account of the rich man and Lazarus. And it says about that, I'm sorry, the rich, the, the poor man. No, rich man and Lazarus, I had it right, right? What does it say about Lazarus? It said he laid at the doorstep of the rich man's house, yearning for the crumbs that would fall from his table. And it says dogs would come and lick his open sores. The only comfort he got was dogs would come and lick his body. Where was he? He was on the steps of the rich man's house. Both perish. Lazarus goes on to paradise. The rich man goes to the place of torment. And some people get the mistaken idea that poor people go to heaven and rich people go to hell. No! How do we know that? If you keep reading the story, it says at the end, Abraham says to the rich man, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear him. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Lazarus was in heaven because of his faith in the word of God. The rich man was in the place he was in because of his lack of faith in the word of God. How far away did that rich man have to go out of his way to help that man on his, who was in desperate need? It was outside his front door. That's as far as he had to go. Right? James makes me squirm just makes me squirm. James challenged us, us, challenged us early on, talking about faith and talking about works, right? The rich man in that story, his lack of faith was evidence in his lack of works. Right? He only thought about himself. He only cared about himself. He was so self-centered, he wouldn't help the guy who lay dying on his front step.
Don't think for a second, brothers and sisters, and I speak this to myself, that the captain of the hosts of the armies of heaven is going to miss a single thing in his evaluation. And he will hold me and he will hold you accountable for both what you know and the resources he has given you to not glorify yourself but to bring praise and honor and glory to his son and to help each other. That's why you've been given what you've given. Whom do you serve? Is your confidence in God? Or is your confidence in your stuff? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for your word, which speaks so straightly to our hearts. Lord, I confess before you myself my sin as described here in your word. Lord, I pray that as you give me opportunities to do that which is right, that I would, as your son did, please you. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here this morning the same thing. That as you, that you give opportunity, that we would walk in your will. Lord, I, uh, I thank you that it's on this Sunday that uh, you had us come to this passage. And as I stand here with all these boxes of gifts behind me for kids that none of us know or more than likely will never see, uh, we thank you for this opportunity to share just a little bit of what the saints here have. We ask your blessing upon them. And we pray that even as we've been um, challenged by your word this morning, as, as these things would go out, that they would indeed um, be a manifold blessing. We thank you for the testimony of the young lady we saw in the video. And again, Lord, we pray um, that that same thing would just happen over and over and over and over again. Lord, help us to not live unto ourselves. Help us to remember day by day that our life is not our own, that we've been bought with a price. So we give you thanks for the gentle leading of your Holy Spirit. And we give you thanks for the direction of your word. And we ask that you bless us now as we part. We pray in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.